Welcome back to Film School Fess-Ups. I'm your host, Drew Morton, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Texas A&M University, Texarkana. I thought before I'd start today's episode that I'd account for some of the best first films I saw during the, uh, the month of September, first films being uh, films that I'm new to, some that many of which will not make it on, on this podcast, um, but are all very good in their own way. So my, my five for the month of September uh, started off with a Criterion-listed uh, early film that's on Filmstruck called Colonel He's a Liar Detective, which is really a precursor to Roger Rabbit. Um, I'm fairly well-versed on uh, early animation. This title had eluded me, and uh, it was it was really a blast, mainly for the technological innovations of trying to bridge live action and animation in a uh, relatively imaginative way. So you can you can catch that title on Filmstruck. Um, I finally watched F.W. Murnau's Faust. I enjoyed it. I also saw a really bad transfer, which will come back on today's uh, episode involving Suspiria. So I feel like I didn't really see it, and that I didn't fully uh, appreciate what was there. It was a HD copy that was listed on YouTube, but it wasn't nearly as good as the stills I saw from the, the Kino um, Blu-ray edition. So I feel like I saw it, but I don't feel like I saw it, if that makes any sense. I feel like it's a film that deserved better, and uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed what I saw. I appreciated the visuals, um, but I also feel like it was uh, experiencing you know, of the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper on a really bad MP3 file or something like that. It, it's it's almost uh, nulls any judgment, I could say, beyond that. Um, My Man Godfrey, which I got on the, uh, the Criterion, uh, the new Blu-ray of that, uh, had not seen it before, and I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was quite funny. I enjoyed the reversals of some of the different uh, aspects in the formula. And uh, the style of it was uh, pretty great. I actually really enjoyed the weird credit sequence that's both diegetic and non-diegetic, where it's the different lights in the background of the cityscape as the camera pans over to the junkyard. I thought that was uh, really interesting in in kind of a way that uh, reminded me of uh, I Know Where I'm Going by uh, Powell and Pressburger, where the, the credits are part of the environment. Perhaps my favorite of the five was uh, Sam Peckinpah's Ride the High Country with uh, Joel McRae and uh, Randolph Scott, especially coming after my summer with the Bud Bedecker films. Uh, I found it really rich and perhaps one of my favorite Sam Peckinpah films. I I know that's uh, probably um, not saying much considering I haven't seen Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and I've seen most of the other stuff, Um, but this one was really fantastic, and uh, I can't wait to watch it again, uh, which, coming from me and, and Westerns, is probably saying quite a bit <laughs> in terms of how much I've grown as a, as a film viewer in the last uh, you know 15 years or so. And uh, the fifth one was uh, 7852, the making of the, uh, the Psycho documentary, or the, um, the documentary about the making of the shower scene in Psycho. I, I don't think there's really any new information to be gleaned from it, and uh, most film professors and academics will probably be like most of it's pretty old hat. But it's also, I thought, in terms of a pedagogical text and bringing it into the classroom, uh, I thought a very useful 
uh, film, and I, I, I enjoyed watching it all the same, even if it was uh, largely information that I, I was familiar with before. So those were my five for September. October is obviously going to be a lot of rewatching horror movies, and I am currently in the process of nailing down our next guest after after this episode on Suspiria. And I'm I'm so happy to have brought on Julia Rhodes for this episode. Uh, Julia has been a great friend of mine for about a decade now, um, that and we've known each other predominantly online through one another's writing, and we correspond almost weekly about things we've seen. Um, but we've never actually had a had a real conversation, um, real as in being you know hearing one another's voice. So um, we've had this long correspondence via text message and email and Facebook Messenger, and we've talked about every horror movie and new things being made, known to man, and I think she may have even written for um, one of my publications in the past uh, that we worked together on, I'm maybe misremembering that, but we've known each other a long time, so it was a great treat to finally be able to sit down and uh, and have a real conversation with her uh, about horror movies that's kind of on the record and, and being able to put a, a voice with a face or face with a voice, uh, is always is always uh, a nice uh, pleasure, especially because we got to talk about her uh, her film school experience, and I was very envious that she got to take a class with James Nairmore at uh, Indiana University. So um, just a, a long way of saying that um, I'm really excited about today's episode. Before I get going, uh, here's the brief bio on Julia. Julia grew up in the southern Midwest and found her escape in media. She has a BA from Indiana University and focused her academic studies on horror film analysis with a feminist bent. She wrote for an online magazine for five years before succumbing to the world of grants administration, but retains her adoration of film while balancing a quote-unquote real job and teaching yoga. So please, help me, help me welcome Julia Rhodes. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Julia. Uh, first question for you, just like I ask all the guests, uh, kind of what got you into movies? Um, honestly, I've been interested in movies since I was a tiny child. I used to go to the movie store, the video store, which are basically now defunct, and they had a five for five dollar VHS deal for five days. And I would, my parents would be at the bookstore down the, the strip mall, and I would just go and pick my five movies and spend an hour or two figuring out what I wanted to watch. And over the next five days, I would watch and rewatch whatever those movies were. It sort of provided a, a fun escape, I guess, from whatever was going on in life at the moment. So it, it's been a thing since I've been a very small kid. Was this like a blockbuster or was this a mom and pop type deal? Early on, it was a mom and pop type deal, and then it turned into a movie gallery, and then I believe it turned into a blockbuster eventually. Okay, so how was your? How did your like criteria work? I know like we had some like mom and pops, and they might have like I think it was like Hallowell's Guide, and it was like the size of a phone book, where it was like you know like every Hollywood movie ever made, um, kind of broken down by star, director, what have you. What did you did you consult any? resources like that before you went in there or did you just look at cover art and or genre i mostly just looked at covers and my parents for the most part although my mom wanted to sort of know what i was watching they sort of gave me free reign so i 
so I picked up horror movies. I got romances. I I got you know I I picked up the things that were popular at the time, which included like, uh, do you remember that movie Blank Check? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one that I definitely like earned a late fee on, and the guy <laughs> at the video store made fun of me for it. Like, I just sort of got my education from everywhere. I picked everything out because it sounded like a good thing at the time. That's why that five for five deal was such a a good thing for me. Every five days, I would just come back for more movies. Yeah, I remember we would do that too. Like the, I think at first it was three for ten, and it was kind of like yeah, you know, we'd like we'd pool our allowances together. And then we would gradually, like, you know, like, we each would pick one, like, it was like, you you had bought a share, and you got to pick one in this situation. Um, but yeah, yeah, once it became five for five, it was a lot better. But yeah, we would, like, I remember ripping the Nutty Professor onto a VHS tape. But it, it's funny, your 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 anecdote is, is very similar to most of the guests I've had on, who are mainly kind of in our in our age range, which is, like, older millennials, Gen Y folks, and just the, the role that old school cable like amc when they used to play movies or bravo when they used to play just films um and video stores that were kind of so foundational and most of us hadn't really been introduced to movies outside of that context where like theaters for most of the guests have been like a secondary outlet where they couldn't afford to go and they would just kind of grab what whatever was at the library or whatever was at the uh the mom and pop um and and kind of get going that way Uh a hundred percent. My my family went. We went to the movies when we could, largely in the summertime, um, because we didn't have air conditioning. And I grew up in the Midwest, where it was hot as hell in the summer. So, my mom would take us to the second run theater, where we'd see, you know, whatever was playing. So, and I, you know, I remember specifically seeing Aladdin and Little Mermaid and The Lion King. You know, your standard Disney movies. Um, but mostly those were the ones my parents would allow me to go see in theaters. The movie store was a different thing, a different, <laughs> a lot more freedom and a lot more choice. So, so what do you think was the, the edgiest pick? Did you ever pick something where you're like, Oh man, I, I should not have picked this movie from the video store. Um, yeah, actually my parents got really upset when I picked suburbia um the one richard linklater movie is it richard linklater i believe so that's one of the few i haven't seen if if it's the one i'm thinking of it is it's the one from 1996 with steve zahn okay why were they Uh, mad about suburbia because that in retrospect that seems kind of i i believe it was because there was a lot of cussing and they were just really upset about cussing and people saying the word fuck. And there were people who were doing things that were not appropriate for a 12-year-old girl, as far as they were concerned. Huh. So All that right. was one of the first ones. When I was 17, I rented um, Eyes Wide Shut, which my yeah, mom... Yeah, that, that freaked my parents out, too. me to watch. But she was like, I would really like for you to please read some Carl Jung, please. (laughs) Okay, Mom. (laughs) All right. So I read some Carl Jung as I was watching um, Eyes Wide Shut and trying to fathom all of what was going on with that movie. I mean, what's so funny about that movie? Because I remember I wanted to go see it in theaters, and that Kubrick DVD set was probably my introduction. It was like my first film school because I had gone through some of the AFI movies and then the minute I got a DVD player, it was like 
I was, what, maybe a freshman in high school, and I was like, I like 2001, I like Dr. Strangelove, and I like Clockwork Orange. I'm buying that set, and I'm going to I'm gonna learn some things. And then that summer was when Eyes Wide Shut came out, and I remembered the older, the elder classmen who had introduced me to these movies and kind of poisoned my mind, because my parents did not want me to watch Clockwork Orange, um, were like, you are absolutely not going to see Eyes Wide Shut. And yet, <laughs> I remember renting it, like, months later... And it's such a tame, moralistic movie about how yeah. this guy shouldn't be doing this and how it's wrong and he just needs to go home and be with his wife and, and satisfy her in the right way. And yeah. yeah, it's it's not like it's, I mean, the, 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 the kind of reputation that movie had at the time was so strangely overblown. It was, and and my parents were so funny about it, and like, and do you remember the Jeremy Irons Lolita that yeah. he made? That came out around the same time, ninety nine maybe. And my dad wanted to make sure he taped it from HBO first, so that he could tell whether it was okay for me to watch it. And like, they were very, they were very weird, particularly about sex stuff. Not so much about violence, but sex stuff. Which is, you know, pretty standard, but still. Yeah, no, my parents, the one experience I had at a drive-in was it was a double bill of speed and true lies. And the one moment that they made us, and I, I was like in sixth grade, and the one moment they made us close our eyes for was the Jamie Lee Curtis strip tease. And it's like, it's <laughs> it's not, and, and there's so many other distressing things going on in that movie, mainly Arnold Schwarzenegger gaslighting his wife and totally abusing her. And doing the switcheroo and scaring the shit out of her, right? But you know that's that's the trigger moment. Um, even the violence and speed, which is is pretty graphic, you know, was, yeah. was nothing compared to the you know can't see Jamie Lee Curtis, which again, it's it's actually a fairly tasteful <laughs> routine. It is. It's really interesting. And and yeah, you mentioned earlier, like I I would always stay up as late as I could watching whatever was airing on broadcast television. And that included stuff like Pet Cemetery and The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby and things like that, that, you know, they cut all down to the bare bones so that they could air them late at night. But it's so, which made it startling as I grew up and found real copies of them and was like, oh, I did not know that scene existed. Whoa, you know, like it was, it was really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I recorded an episode with somebody else where I was talking about the first time I saw Seven, and that was a movie that I only knew through broadcast. And so, towards especially towards the end of that movie, I had no idea what the fuck was going on. Where, like, <laughs> it, it got to the woman who, like, you know, basically cuts her face up, and then you get to the... I mean, and, and there's some ellipsis going on in there as well, like the guy with the, the weird, pros, you know, the, the prosthetic device with the knife, where you don't even, even in the film version, you don't completely understand. But, right, that insert shot of the dildo with the giant buck knife on the end, that's not there. So I'm like, what? why is this guy screaming in this room about, yep. you know, the, probably yep. there's some term, like, dubbed over him saying, I, I fucked her, you know, like, it was probably like, I loved her. And I was like, I, I don't know what's happening here. And then, yeah, the first time I saw that on DVD or VHS, I was like, whoa, this this is yep. I, it's a movie I understand now. <laughs> yep. yep. So what that were the same. what were the mm -hmm. what were the formative movies of that of that moment in your life? What were like the two that kind of really shaped um, the kind of your your interest in film or kind of where you where your 
kind of preferences lie? Well, if I'm being honest about when I started to really get into analysis and sort of trying to understand film from a, a more academic or uh, intense perspective, prob probably, and this is super cliche, American Beauty, it's like, it's film 101 for, you know, many reasons. And my friends at the time were not super interested in movies and we all went to see it in theaters together and everybody came out of it with a different interpretation of mm. what roses meant, what the mise-en-scene meant, you know, even though we didn't know that term when we were, sure. you know, 15. Uh, and so that was the first time I really sort of dived into a conversation with my friends about a movie and we had different thoughts about what was meant by the imagery. And so that was sort of like, oh, okay, this is a thing that I could really examine and find to be interesting in a an academic way. So I that was probably the one that like kicked me into gear, but my friends have never I know almost no one who likes horror movies. So that's a whole other, you know, thing. I'll, and most of the people I know who like horror movies are men. And it has definitely been interesting trying to navigate being that girl who likes horror movies, uh, loves horror movies, really, and, and figuring out when women are going to think that I'm... Uh, when women are going to think that I'm somehow an anti-feminist or, you know, and that's going maybe a little too far, but I was just watching a special feature on the Suspiria DVD about how um, horror movies can be taken as either extremely anti-feminist sure. or extremely pro-woman. And I tend to fall in the second category depending on the movie. But but it's always been interesting navigating, you know, that the way that people the way that people figure out how they like movies and don't like movies. And my friends definitely sort of shamed me about liking horror movies when I was a kid. Oh, so. uh. I was, I was a weird kid. Yeah. I, I guess I don't see it as being that weird. I, I don't know. I knew a lot of, a lot of girls in high school and middle school who liked horror movies and a lot of my classmates did. And it was mainly because Stephen King was the gateway. So you read Stephen yeah. King books and then you watch the movies and, you know, yeah. and most of them were made for TV and not very good, you know, until yeah. you start to, and even some of the, you know, I, Pet Cemetery, like, I enjoy it as a guilty pleasure, but I'm like, it's it's not, it's not, like, Stand oh, no. By it's Me or the, the good ones are caring. Yeah. Um, and I did, I read Stephen King from a very young age, and I, try, I took a bunch of my friends to go see The Green Mile, because I had mm -hmm. read the book and thought, you know, this is a this is drama. This is not true horror. This is something my friends are going to like. And then we got to the execution scene and my friends were like, no. And I was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't know it was going to be this terrible. Like, geez, guys. <laughs> I, and that kept happening. Shawshank Redemption hit people that way too when I tried that one. So it was interesting. I grew up around a lot of hippies. Okay. Well, it's interesting <laughs> too that you say that, you know, we think of horror in terms of those two camps. And I remember, and I tend to think it teaches this way in my intro class, and it's wrong, I shouldn't teach it this way, but thinking of horror as being 
the horror is tending to veer conservative, which I think it does in terms of punishing certain people for certain behaviors. But it doesn't have to be, right? But we tend to draw these kind of absolute conclusions about it based on, on certain genre stereotypes, right? You can have horror that is progressive and horror that is um, more pro-feminist and, and more anti-masculinity. And, you know, that that's not even just now, right? I mean, you can go back and look at Rosemary's Baby. And yes, there's certain, you know, the hysterical woman is still there as a stereotype. Um, but it's also challenging it and saying she's right to be hysterical. This isn't an ill-founded belief, right? Um, so, so why do you think horror resonates so much with you? Why do you think it kind of took root? I, I think probably because... Uh, it feels to me like a genre that allows women a lot of agency. The idea of, of the final girl, as, as Carol Clover calls her, uh, the, the idea of, of returning the male gaze, uh, all of that really spoke to me as I began to really think about movies and think about the genre itself. And rather than it, becoming something about watching women just get murdered repeatedly mm-hmm. was about watching how women handled these horrible situations in which they found themselves and the power that it gave them. And so it, it so even from Halloween on, and, and then Scream came out also in 1996. So I was of exactly the age when, although I wasn't aware of all of its predecessors and its references, it then sort of drew my interest to the predecessors. And Wes Craven was so smart and so good at what he did that even when he was referencing his own work, he was extremely clever with it. And he always respected women in his movies. So yeah, I I feel like it's multiple things. I came of age in in a good time for horror for women, partially due to the sort of that scream and, and it's ilk created and also I grew up in a college town and was I had access to media school and, and lots of uh, you know indie theaters that really provided access to cool stuff so speak a little bit about that right um last week my guest Daryl hadn't gone to film school he took a couple classes what was what was your kind of educational path like um I really I, I'm more of a writer than I am a um, maker of things. So I, when I went into college, it was uh, probably going to be sort of a film analysis focus. And I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, which is a great town. And it's the home of Indiana University, which is, uh, it has a great media studies school. My major was communication and culture, although that has now been folded into, I forget what their actual media studies school is called. Um, they, they all change names like every three years. It's, it's confusing. <laughs> yeah. And now my major no longer exists, <laughs> but it folded into something else. And it was a strange mix of, of film analysis and uh, media making and rhetoric. So it sort of got the whole gamut of of what communication studies is. Um, But my focus largely was in uh, in feminist film theory and was lucky enough to be surrounded by professors who were really well-versed in the works of Kubrick and and, um, Craven and 
Argento and et cetera. And almost all of them are women. So that was a really, I, I came into college and I was like, there are lots of fantastically smart women who love horror movies. I am justified. So it was a good experience. No, that's awesome. You, you guys did have a great faculty there and I was so disappointed. James Nairmore came to guest teach at UCLA for like a year and it was the year right after I graduated and I think he did a Kubrick class and I was like, damn it. Like, I mean, if there was one, I mean, I, I'd taken a Kubrick class as an undergrad and I don't mean to disparage the, the professor I had, but it was also one of those where it's like, that's like, that's like getting somebody in their sweet spot. You, you got to get them oh, there. Oh yeah. But I, I took a semester's class on Kubrick with Nearmore and I, did really well in the class, which surprised me. I'd heard he was a really difficult grader. I had a lot of fun writing about, um, I particularly wrote a, a paper about the way that Kubrick portrayed the character of Wendy Torrance mm. in the movie versus the way that King wrote her. Um, King's portrayal being far more uh, female friendly than <laughs> Kubrick's portrayal. So. Mm. Just a, so, just a little bit when he's not describing her cleavage, though. Yeah, well, it was Stephen King, so you got to give him some to hang himself with. But, but yeah, it, it it was a fun class, and it was really interesting to spend whole semesters focusing on just one director, one one, however you want to say it, a tour or whatnot. Um, and it was. I didn't realize that that was an option. And of course, if I, since I have decided not to go farther than a bachelor's degree, it isn't really a lucrative way to have gone. <laughs> I'm not really sure what I should be doing with my bachelor's in film studies, but it is. it was a really great way to sort of learn how to look at the world, look at sure. media, understand better the way that people behind media the way that they want to transmit messages and how to read them. So. No, exactly. That's how I always try to sell my class to my students. I'm like, the, mo the it's like the movies are the M&M. It's the candy coating. And then the inside, we're teaching you critical thinking skills and how to, how to think about like the intersection of art, consumerism, and politics, right? So if we could teach you those couple of things within the confines of watching Citizen Kane, we've done our job. Yes, exactly, exactly. So Suspiria, in terms of being a fess-up for me and probably for you, is a bit of a fake-out. I, I had seen Suspiria uh, a couple years ago because you kept telling me to watch it. And <laughs> um, the reason I, I kind of chose it for this one is because I thought it, it brought out an interesting discussion in terms of what actually counts as the first time you see a movie. Because when I had seen it, I watched it on a burned DVD copy from Anchor Bay that wasn't it's it's not great quality. And I have this mentality with certain movies where I'll kind of save myself like it's this weird sexual virginal metaphor where it's like I have to see Andrei Rublev in the right conditions or it doesn't count, right? It needs <laughs> to be this way in 35 millimeter or it's it's you know, I can't watch it on my 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 watch or my my phone. That's that's a non-starter. Um, so Suspiria I had seen on DVD, and it's a film that I, I admit I, I didn't fully grasp the first time. I still don't know if I grasped it, but when I finally watched 
the Synapse version, the new Blu-ray of it, which I think is the one you were you were watching as well, um, that came out in, maybe in the last year, and it's newly restored, and the colors look beautiful, and of course the, the surround soundtrack has been remastered, so the, the Goblin score is fantastic. Uh, it did feel like I was actually watching it for the first time. It did feel like I was seeing it in the proper conditions. So what do you what do you think about that idea that, like, there's this kind of adage that, like, I feel like every time I watch a movie is the first time I've seen it because I'm always watching it differently, or I, I try to, right? It doesn't always work. Uh, I was watching Singing in the Rain with Daryl. We talked a little bit about this, where it's it's difficult to watch a movie I've seen 50 times and see it new. Um, yeah. But there are certainly movies where, like, I'll take a five-year break and I'll come back to it, and it's like, wow, that is a very different film than I remembered. So what's your relationship with Suspiria been like in that in that sense? So, interestingly, I, I knew a guy in early college. He was not in school with me, but he was an older partner of a friend of mine um, called himself Dario, even though that wasn't his real name, um, who claimed an obsession with Argento. <laughs> and he brought me over. He had I think he had a huge crush on me, and that's a whole other story, but... <laughs> Over and showed me this movie and just like blasted the volume. But of course it was, it was shitty quality because all of the copies before this newest one yeah. really were. I was, I was actually just watching some of the special features from the Anchor Bay one that you just referred to. And wow, the video is terrible. It just looks awful. Um, so what I most remember is just the vividness of the colors and the, the soundtrack and the way that, not that any of the plot made me feel, but the way that the movie itself just put me on edge. And, and that was something that really, I was like, wow, I've never quite encountered something that made me feel that way before. So that was probably 2002, 2003. Okay. I had the, the limited edition Anchor Bay ones um, from that same year, I think. So it has some great special features, but the, the video quality is terrible. Um, and then when I was in college, one of my favorite professors, uh, Dr. Joan Hawkins at IU, taught a class that was on, it wasn't on body genres, but it was on something similar. And she taught part of her curricula was based in Jalo and um, taught a whole week's classes, I think, of, of Argento. So we did Suspiria and Inferno and some others. So I got to wow. watch on actually a, a big projected screen. Again, kind of crappy video quality, but <laughs> I walked into the room and she was like, hello, how are you? And I was like, can you turn up the volume? <laughs> Yes, I will. I was like, yes, that's the only way you can watch this movie is with the soundtrack blasting because it's the only way that you can really feel the full effect. So at that point, I knew that it was a movie that made me feel a way. Yeah, no, it's funny. When we got the, the Synapse version this past summer, Nicole and I put it on, and we had just gotten the new surround sound system, and it scared the shit out of the dog. Like, the dog was just, like, <laughs> laying under the bed in the other room, like, what the fuck is going on in the living room? Like, that that and Dunkirk, I've never seen the dog more terrified of, of a movie in my entire life, and it is just because it is this kind of orgy of sound. My cats hate the soundtrack. They hate <laughs> 
every time it plays, they're like, mom, they'll like come up and yell at me and then run away. And I'm like, okay, all right, guys. <laughs> and if it's that alarming to animals, I feel like it's got to be doing something to our brains, right? Yeah, I'm going to give a brief plot summary, which is probably not going to be helpful at all in the least, because as you've already noted, it's really a film that doesn't give a shit about plot. It's really a it film that's... It doesn't at all. No, yeah. it's much more about tone um, and place and atmosphere than it is about plot. But um, it's about um, a ballerina from New York. Her name is Susie, played by Jessica Harper. She comes to a German dance academy, and immediately after arriving on a weird stormy night, um, this killer ends up killing one of her classmates and hanging her in this grisly uh, opening set piece. Um, she you know, starts to get accustomed to the school the next day. They try to, like, place her with another roommate and try to figure out her living accommodations. And you've got Madame Blanc, played by Joan Bennett, the great film noir actress, and uh, Mrs. Tanner, I think it is, right? As, yep. as uh, Alito Valley. Alito Valley as the, uh, mm-hmm. the teacher. And they're running this this kind of dance academy, and we find out as the movie's going on, as weird things start happening, like maggots dropping from the ceiling, um, that this is a that this is a dance academy run by a coven of witches who need their their head witch to survive the queen, and uh, yeah, things come to a head, and the queen is stabbed by Susie's character as they're about to kill her and keep her quiet so that she can't spread the news of what's going on at the dance academy, and the the academy goes up in flames, and that's the end of the movie. Did mm-hmm. I miss anything? Yeah. Any anything that I should add? No. No. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. All I right. Mean, it really, it's just, it's very simple. So. It is simple, but it, it's also because of like the surrealist nature of it. Like trying to remember how the different pieces escalate on top of one another. Like I, I always like lose, the, even though I've seen it two or three times now. Like the the headmaster snoring bit. Right yes. there, there are these just strange like pieces that just because it's not a straightforward, linear, um, logically driven film that just just kind of fall out of my my uh, memory when I think so, about it. Because I I'm a nerd and because I took classes on particularly Argento and this movie, uh, the the plot is sort of loosely based on Confessions of an Opium Eater by Thomas De Quincey which named the three mothers, the mother of tears, the mother of darkness, and the mother of sighs. And the mother of sighs is, is Suspiria, uh, Mater Suspiriorum. Um, and so the idea sort of is that she's one of this trio of witches who I think in the movie they refer to as Helena Marcus, um, a Greek immigrant um, who practiced black magic in Germany in what Argento has referred to as the sort of triangle of black magic in Europe. Um, and so there's there's a lot more to it than just your your silly uh, witch story. Yeah. Evidently, this is all based on the fact that Argento's former partner, Daria Nicolodi, uh, her grandmother apparently attended an academy somewhere in Europe that taught dance and biology and various other piano things and also black magic. So 
he told him that story on the set of Deep Red, and then she helped him write and create uh, Suspiria and sort of served as his muse for the next few years. But there, yeah, there's really a lot actually going on underneath all of that, but it comes out in this explosion of color and emotion and blood that just, it's very striking, I think, out of all of his movies. It, it isn't the most masterful, but it hits you the hardest. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I, in terms of like an aesthetic experience, it is the most overwhelming. And I think on that new disc, um, one of the the folks talking about it um, both describes it in terms of a fairy tale and describes it in terms of The Shining, which gave me a deeper appreciation of it because Suspiria was was the first Argenta movie I saw, and as somebody who just naturally tends to have a prejudice against horror movies that have more of a magical element and something that can't be described i was i was a little underwhelmed i tend to like um his more straightforward giallo films and and we can certainly have a discussion whether or not this classifies as that because it's kind of a controversial point um but yeah the fact that yeah yeah the fact that it is so kind of up in the clouds and surreal and doesn't really care if you understand its rhyme or reason aggravated me the first time the second time when i knew to expect that i I was much more forgiving of it and i i tried to take it for what it was and i i appreciated it a lot more um but I, i i liked your note about how you were basically talking about what drove him personally to make this film so why do you think he makes this pivot at this moment because before this um for folks who haven't maybe looked at Dario Argento's filmography right before listening to this, he does some very straightforward Jolly films before it. He does Burdened with the Crystal Plumage, Cat of Nine Tails, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, and then Deep Red, and then he does this. So why, in your in your perspective and in your knowledge, does he make this kind of pivot at this moment? Because he had tried doing comedy earlier, right before Deep Red, and I guess it, I haven't seen it. Um, but it, it failed miserably. But I, I do see Suspiria as being another attempt to do something very different. Yes. Um, somebody in one of the, the, the features on, the, I think, the new Synapse uh, disc says that this is his second first movie, I think, um, that Suspiria is. And uh, I kind of, I can see that in a way. And honestly... I think it was Daria Nicolodi who uh, helped push him toward this, who who really influenced him and allowed him, wanted him to make a movie that was... There are really only a couple of men in the entire cast, mm-hmm. Suspiria. And that was pretty rare in any Italian film of the time, but especially in Argento's movies and especially in horror. Um, and... You know, they were all just sort of set pieces waiting to be murdered. But still, Susie was stronger and more intense of a character than you would have expected. And I think that probably came out of Nicolodi's influence on Argento. Um, and you can you can watch the way that that influence deteriorated in some of their more recent um Features about one another. Over the last 20 years, they have 
not minced words about feelings toward each other and uh, name calling. And it's it's really interesting to watch. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the professional relationship, I think, blended with the emotional relationship in a way that created a, a muse ideal that ended badly for everyone. Um, but it created some beautiful movies. And you can even kind of see him heading towards that to a certain degree in Deep Red with her character, where she's constantly challenging the David Hemmings character, right? That, that film is constantly critiquing his masculinity, where he can't get in the car, and coming right off of, uh, you know, Blow Up, right, where he is this kind of swinging dick and happen in London, right? He's he's just diminished throughout the film, and he can't get anything right, he can't solve the mystery, uh, all these things are, aren't going his way. So I feel like Argento's already starting to kind of feel that influence there. And I, I, th- I think you're kind of right on the money there. Um, so what, what for you bridges that kind of gap? You see, you know, you, you agreed with the point that it is this second first movie. Um, but there are, you know, continuities to his earlier pieces, right? There is the, the use of Goblin. There is the use of um, kind of this giallo template that veers off by the end of that first set piece because i mean you look at this and you compare it to deep red before it and they both start off with this insane gory you know over the top set piece where somebody is killed and then they kind of diverge so so can you speak a bit about that like how do you feel like it fits into his career stylistically aesthetically how does it build on what came before how does it differentiate aside from the female roles i i think that probably coming off of deep red and and he was i think kind of burned from um the comedy that he attempted i think it was called five days um and uh, and apparently his relationship with david hemmings on the set of deep red was also not super pleasant so and uh, his relationship with nickelodeon continued to be both it sounds like professionally um, really successful but also really volatile and she if I'm reading her correctly now and in the the features that I've seen her speak about him in feels as though he did not give her enough credit for the things that she actually contributed to his art Mm. so I, I think probably between Deep Red and Suspiria, he was sort of rethinking, you know, am, do I need to stick with Jalo? Do I need to stick with a straight up murder story? Or am I willing to dive into the supernatural? And Nicolodi fully believes in the supernatural. She's mm. been on about that throughout her life. So I think she's the one who sort of, you know, she actually took a screenshot of one of the quotes she had um, in one of the earlier DVDs. You can probably timestamp that as a pause moment. But um, basically, she says something like, it was my movie, but he did all those murder scenes that he was so good at. (laughs) And I was like, oh, burn, you know? (laughs) Um, 
there it is. Well, and I, and I mean, he even kind of owns certain call-outs and certain criticisms in Tenebrae. I don't know if you've watched Tenebrae yet. We've talked about yes. it. But yeah, like, it's I mean, that, it's, just, it's just crazy. It's it's this, like, Wes Craven New Nightmare movie where he's basically, I mean, not to the same extent, but he becomes this kind of avatar for this, this writer who's getting accused of being a misogynist, who just relishes in murder and all of these other things, right? Um, yes. But, and he's often getting criticized by, by female reporters. And and Nickelodeon in the, the Anchor Bay um, edition has a quote um, that she says, this story was different because black magic was very apparent. And naturally, Dario shot those great death scenes that he is so good at. That's all she had to say. She, that, that was it. That's all she had to say. She, I think, feels as though her input on the process was not adequately credited, um, which I think listening to him speak about her is also really interesting. And and watching the way their daughter moves in the world is also interesting, but a tangent. So, so what extent do you feel like Suspiria is a giallo? Because I know some people who say it's the preeminent giallo film. Um, do you do you agree with that? Do you think it is something different? Do you think it's a subgenre, a hybrid? What do you what do you kind of take, or how would you classify um, Suspiria? I I think it's I think it's probably kind of a subgenre. It's not, it is it's a it's about the fantastic. It's about magic, but it is also about real people committing real murders. So I you know and. Uh, it definitely for Argento, I think probably Deep Red was his first real dive into the fantastic, the supernatural. Um, but Suspiria marked his full-on, just like swan dive into playing around in black magic and witches, and and the entire idea of the three mothers. Um, so it it. I think it probably can't quite be categorized as a giallo, but I would have to go back and sort of re-examine the definition and figure out what all that looks like. I'll I'll try to help. Um, if you, if you get the Tenebrae disc, which I think is another Synapse disc, there's a great two-hour documentary on there um, about the history of the giallo, and it it's got Cat Ellinger and all these these kind of great thinkers on it. I think Maitland McDonough's on there. She also does the commentary on it. Um, nice. So it's a really That's good article I've been looking at while I've been sitting here. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a great disc. And even though I was a little lukewarm on the film until I rewatched it with Nicole and kind of had a greater sense of Argento's filmography, because I do think it's one of those films where you need a bit more of a primer in what he's doing and what he's responding to and how it does have this meta dynamic. Um, my understanding from the documentary and from the limited amount of reading I've done is that like a giallo tends to be about an outside person, normally a man who comes into a region that he is not familiar with. So sometimes it's an American tourist. Sometimes it's uh, in the case of bird with the crystal plumage, it's an American tourist in deep red. Uh, he's a British guy who's in the, in Rome, right? Um, I'm trying to think of other ones. 
Um, in the girl who knew too much, or the, the what's the the other title for it? Uh, it's a Bava film. It's a it's an American girl who reads too many mystery novels who goes over to Italy. Mm-hmm. So it's typically an outsider, but not always. Um, but again, just like the the PI figure in um, most film noir, this outsider status kind of means that they're constantly under the suspicion of the authorities and constantly in danger from the people who are committing the crimes. Right, so there's this outsider figure who sees a crime, who typically sees something that they misinterpret, um, that they have some sort of vision or some recurring psychological hang-up, that they've witnessed something, something, but there's a gap, and they're trying to overcome that gap. And so, yeah. what's and what's weird about Argento movies in this in this way is that even though Suspiria is, like you said, this kind of deep dive. Very early, there is this kind of supernatural slight bent. Um, so Bird with the Crystal Plumage, I'm trying to remember. I don't think there's one in there, although I love that film for so many other reasons, mainly the, the Morricone score and the Vittorio Storaro uh, cinematography. Like it, it is like if you took um, like a Bertolucci movie or something and, and, and stuck it together, or an Antonioni movie, and, and turned it into a... Um, giallo film so I, I like that one for those reasons but with Cat of Nine Tales the one with Carl Malden I don't know if you've seen it it's been forever okay I remember a little bit but he's 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 blind but right like the classic use of blind characters he has this like supernatural ability to solve puzzles and to see things with his other senses so again he, he's kind of using a genre trope but this guy's dialed up, and I, I think there's something also going on in terms of sex hormones that probably hasn't aged very well uh, in terms of somebody's uh, identification um, that yeah. that is also, like, not quite grounded in reality, right? Um, right. After that, it's Four Flies in Grey Velvet. I kind of... I'm trying to remember that one. I think there's something about an image on someone's retina where they're trying to, like read somebody's eye I, I can't quite remember what that one was but that deep... sounds right it's also been forever since i've seen that one yeah that's the one that kind of blends that just falls out for me but deep red has as a has this weird right there are psychics in this world and they can understand crimes and and see them before they happen right um so i feel like he's got the giallo format which baba tends to do more on a straight basis and um but there there are certainly those that take more liberties with the supernatural, like even the black cat, the the falsy version is is weirdly over the top, and this cat is like much. It's it's almost entertaining, the what this cat can do because it's it's so kind of untethered from reality. Um, yeah. So I I could see why some people call it Suspiria Giallo, but I ultimately think it is something very very different, especially because. It's it's a mer- it's a mystery that doesn't really have a logical conclusion. There's no like who done it moment at the end. The Agathis Christie moment isn't there. You you have almost more questions at the end of Suspiria than you do, um, you know, than you should considering you already know what the resolution is. Absolutely more questions, and all you get at the end of Suspiria is you know you have been watching Suspiria. <laughs> I mean that's the end, and and you're. Okay. All right. Well, what did I just watch? Like, uh, 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 and for that reason, I think probably I agree with you. Although he's considered one of the figures of of Giallo, I think he 
uh, Suspiria to me doesn't quite fit the genre. Um, it definitely it's adjacent, and I I like the the idea of connecting it to that, but not quite. I I, I don't necessarily think any of his the three mothers or even like phenomenon it, uh, would is is a straightforward jalo. I think after this point. Maybe up until opera, they also and and Tenebrae, Tenebrae probably is, but Tenebrae and opera are probably the closest he gets back to doing the more straight genre pieces. Whereas the rest, it's like, yeah, he's just like, I'm in my own little world. I've made my name. This is this is kind of the the weird subgenre or, or preoccupation I've got to bring with this. So it's almost this infusion of an auteur's. Um, I mean, and and taking into account that that auteur vision has. Um, Nickelodeon's influence in it as well. This kind of collaboration is flavored, um, where he's kind of taken the genre by the the, the midpoint of his career. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I I have a lot more reading up to do, a lot more studying to do on Italian cinema of that era, actually. Um, and I, you know, it's been a long time since college, so hopefully go back, but. But it's been interesting. I had to dig through a, a big box of printed articles back in <laughs> course the day. Packets. We had to, yeah, we had to <laughs> course packets from you know from the bookstore and pay our money for them. Um, so I, I went through and found a bunch of my old materials for studying Italian horror film from the 1970s. It was really it was kind of a neat experience. Yeah, the only reason I feel kind of on an even keel discussing them is because. Uh, my friend Kevin Ferguson did a, a video on a woman in lizard skin, and he was talking about Jalo films on Twitter around Christmas. And I was like, this is a total blind spot. I have no idea what these are, but people keep saying they're like film noir and horror movies, and I love both of those things. So I'm going to I'm gonna go big and go home on this. And, um, yeah, I, I, I binge-watched like 20 of them in probably a month, so I, I got kind of obsessed, and then... I'd show the cream of the crop to other friends over the summer, and I read the the Maitland McDonough book, so it just became one of those kind of summer obsessions, and I keep trying to do something probably constructive with it, like I should probably write something or make something and somehow justify all this time I've spent on this. <laughs> um, but if it's just a podcast that the episode, that's that's okay too. But yeah, it's... It's it's really interesting stuff, and and there was so much going on in Italy at the time, and and when it comes to Suspiria, the setting in Germany is also really interesting, and it was not far enough beyond fascism, beyond the Nazis, mm -hmm. for it to be so far removed. So there's just there is actually a lot going on in uh in the cinematography and in. It was only it was less than a decade after the um, the riots in Paris, and there there was so much going on in Europe, and so you have to sort of take all that into account as well when you look at this stuff. And I I tended to read Argento as being apolitical initially until I I, I think I was watching Deep Red again this summer, and I didn't realize the the use of like Jewish iconography in there, I just kind of like went past me the first time I saw it. And uh, whoever does the commentary on the new Arrow disc does, you know, that's one of his big talking points. And there's the Star of David and the coffee table, which I saw, but I just kind of associated. I was like, oh, I thought it was some occult reference because she's psychic or something going on there. And and yeah, so it it was kind of 
changed the way I saw his work. And again, I like you, I wish I had a better kind of context or understanding of kind of what he was responding to. I think one of the one of the disappointing things about Argento is that and Jolly probably in general is that because it is kind of seen as this lesser genre, the same way that horror is, is there aren't a lot of academics who necessarily want to stake their claim or plant their flag on Dario Argento movies. You know, Maitland McDonough's thesis was kind of a, a one-off. She, I think she wrote it when she was at NYU, and, it, you know, she's known more as being kind of a... That's not to disparage her, but she's known for being more of a film critic, whereas there hasn't... You know, she, Argento hasn't gotten the attention that Hitchcock has gotten. Nope. And Craven hasn't gotten the attention that Argento has gotten. So because of their kind of social status as being these more transgressive horror movies and more disturbing horror movies um, to a certain extent, uh, I feel like they've gotten they've gotten kind of written off. Yes. And, uh, and I think that a lot of what, I mean, I, I definitely have dated and, and known some people who refuse to watch black and white movies who don't have any interest in uh, dialogue or cinematography that feels far removed from the, our everyday experience and, and things like Suspiria, uh, that are so completely of an era and yet removed from that era sort of startle people, I think. Um, people who want to go see things like, you know, um, The Bye Bye Man or whatever or that horrible movie was last fall. Um, we haven't, yeah, we've had, we've had an odd experience in the this decade of horror movies and I'm really interested to see how the remake of Suspiria turns out. Um, witches are having a moment right now, so <laughs> see how that all ends up. But I think that part of it is that uh, people hear this, they, they hear dialogue that sounds stilted, they see shots that make no sense, they they interpret it as being something that's old and not or wrong or a mistake. Or like you think of something like cinema sins and I have to teach my students. I'm like, just because something's in there and may not make, you know, obvious sense to you doesn't mean it's a mistake. Right. So like I show them the jump cutting or not the jump, the breaking of the 180 degree rule and the shining. And I'm like, there's a specific reason why he is doing this. It's not a mistake. It's not bad. It's not, you know, a plot hole or whatever, you know, like those the domain of criticism that the cinema sin guys do just kills me because it's, it's soul crushing. Because I get papers like that where it's like there's a continuity error and that means it's bad or you know, yeah, like they no. think that that's reading a movie and it's like no, it's not. Tell me about what it's saying about race or gender and what what's yeah. the theme of the movie and and tell me how it plays with reality mm-hmm. and. T- place with the rules of cinema but don't treat that necessarily as a negative or a positive it can just it is part of the way that hopefully it is part of the way that that particular creator wanted to make that movie so what for you makes Suspiria canonical why do you think it is this kind of revered masterpiece of horror I think it's uh, largely I, I think it's because of 
like I was describing earlier, the, the way that it makes people feel. It's it's the way that it puts you on edge from the very beginning. I mean, you in that very first scene, you have Susie walking through the airport and you have silence and loud and silence and loud. And you're immediately aware that you're coming into something that's not right. And then there's the opening and closing of the airport doors. And that in itself is violent. It's a mm. knife going into a, a metal bit and you're like, okay, all right, we're, we're doing something here. And then she's in Wonderland. And, and it just gives you this intense feeling of being totally displaced. And that's something that even when I was watching uh, worse quality versions of the movie, sort of felt like being, and, and Nickelodeon even has compared it to this Alice in Wonderland or, yeah. you know, it, it is, it's a fairy tale. It's sort of timeless in a way. And the way that they filmed it, the way that they used color, the way that they used texture and sound really have made it into, if something that has no plot, really, something that is just a burst of emotion. Yeah, no, and, and I... I, I... I think I think that's a fair way to put it. And there aren't a lot of horror movies that are just about atmosphere and how you feel. Like I think The Shining kind of is because it's more about just giving you a sense of rhythm and a sense of place. Um and it, and that surprises me because it's like I love The Shining and I'm always like given Suspiria the side eye because it's almost like too much for me where I I don't know, like who's I discussing this with over the summer where we were discussing movies that like are so formally over the top that I, I like become dubious of them or I, I spiteful almost where I'm like, don't show me every, don't like give me everything, like hold it back. And like, I, I, I get that sensation with Suspiria for no good reason. It just, it, especially as like a formalist, I'm like, I should love this. There's crazy shit going on here. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, so yeah, no, I, I totally get that that opening is great and up to the murder and all of that. And the, the moment where she's walking around and trying to figure out how many footsteps it takes to map the space out and get a sense of the geography around her. It is this right. disorienting experience. There's no logic. There is no logic. <laughs> there's no logic to any architecture. There's no, there's no logic to the plot. It just doesn't make sense. It's just that you're floating through this world and you're at the whim of this crazy man, you know, and we don't even know what that crazy man woman in you know, yeah, of the witch looks like. We never really get the idea of the monster. We see, we see Helena Marcos at some point, but that is not necessarily very satisfying. It's, she's not the enemy. It's, this larger force so and it's this institution too right how institutionalized it's been and it's you know they they don't want to like kill everybody they want to kill the person who's going to endanger the institution of the dance academy yes which i think is is duly interesting when it comes to the idea of fascism in mm -hmm. italy Germany, both so and and something that's always been interesting to me is is the role of ballet in horror and uh, the idea of ballet as an art form and as also sort of it's a beautiful ritual kind of of uh, torturing the body into mm -hmm. submission so uh, one of the the key scenes in Suspiria that you see in trailers a lot Susie's tottering around on her point shoes before she's 
and she's waving her hand over her forehead and then she faints dramatically and like nobody nobody faints like that that's not how that works ballet <laughs> is sort of a uh, portrayed in horror films like black swan the red shoes um there's episode of angel that portrays a prima ballerina who has to relive her worst show ever it is it's a it's a common trope and the idea of beauty and torturing the body really sort of add to the entire vibe of how the movie turns out so last question for you what are what are your thoughts on the remake are you optimistic or do you feel like suspiria is a holy object and shouldn't be remade what's your what's your what's your what's your read i am open-minded um i have not seen call me by your name yet so i don't know the director's work really but i love tilda swinton so i will i will watch almost anything that she does um I am very skeptical of its runtime. I'm not sure that a movie that seems to be as intense as what they want us to think it's going to be in the trailers and to be able to hold that level of crazy for two and a half hours. Um, It also sounds in the trailers as though they're trying to create more uh, narrative and dialogue. And give some more uh, maybe agency or um, narration to the characters, which was one I think of of Suspiria's, um, I guess. It's the strength, it's the, 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 yeah, that's, yeah. It's the fact that the characters are just sort of flat and they're there and it's, it's about the fairy tale and not the characters. So I'm curious. I'm excited, but I am also really skeptical. Yeah, about- no, I I I I feel the same way about the runtime. Where like I I played this this, it's a video game that could be great. It's Alien Isolation, and it's the closest. I I think one of the best reviews I read of it was like it's the closest you'll ever get to being in an, in a simulator of what it's like to be with a xenomorph, which means you're gonna die almost immediately and you're gonna hide for like. 20 minutes under a table and it's going to be over and it's going to be painful and nasty. Um, and it's, it's a survival horror game that for like most survival horror games, when we think of like resident evil, all these other games, they're about six hours long and that's, that's the rate. And there's a certain kind of ebb and flow where it starts off with a big set piece. Then it's discovering the mystery of the world and going through it. And then there's, you know, just like classic video games, there's levels and bosses at the end and you'll run into a zombie here and there on the way. Right. But Alien Isolation, one, you never get, you can't fight them, so there's no dynamic to your engagements. You always have to hide. And you're constantly running back and forth through the same world that you've been in. It's always, this. it's like the same four levels that you'll have to like wow. go back and solve a puzzle in. And there'll be environmental changes, like more fire and stuff is taking over. But the game lasts, like, if you play it quickly, it's probably about a 15-hour game. And there's a breaking point around that six-hour mark where it's like, this went from being, when when the alien would come by, I would get scared. And, like, you know, like, it, it, it was a scary game. It was intense. I, I could only play it for a couple hours at a crack. It went from something that would scare me as a spectator and as a gamer to something where I just would get, like, frustrated. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, he's back. Now I just, like, I'd start looking at my phone 
and you know <laughs> like checking my email and right. then i'd hear him like because the surround sound was being used that he'd go back up into the grate and i'm like okay he's gone oh at least i got an email done right but it was it it quickly just became obnoxious where you didn't want to feel that level of suspense and and that level of level of anxiousness and it, it just kind of turned in on itself right and i i worry that that's how sus- that the the new one is going to be it's been a long time since i've seen a movie well it's been a long time since i've seen a movie that i realized was two and a half hours long um and that sounds interesting considering that especially in the early 2000s you know we were waiting in line to see the Lord of the Rings movies, which lasted three plus hours. Um, but yeah, it, it, for a horror movie, two and a half hours is a lot of time to expect people to maintain a sense of suspense. I mean, if you think about horror movies that are that length, a, a colleague of mine, Dan Humphreys, asked this question when he heard the running length and was like, what is like, what are the longest horror movies? I think, Exorcist is maybe a, a shade over two or right around two. Yeah, that sounds. Shining's right. like two ten, right? So that's getting there. I think the longest one next to Suspiria was the Aliens special edition, and yeah, that movie. When you watch that special edition, it's it's a exhausting gauntlet of a movie where it's like I love Aliens, but it's also like holy shit! I feel like I ran a marathon at the end of that movie. But, you know, Jim Cameron knows how to escalate in a way. And, yeah. and Aliens is also significant because it's not just a horror movie. It has such a strong action undertone where it doesn't – it's not always about scaring you. It's about, you know, there's there's other bodily reactions going on in that movie, I guess I would say. Yeah, definitely. And I, I'm – the trailers that they're releasing, I think, are are trying to play heavily on Argento's the the trailers from the nineteen seventies. They're trying to play on uh, pretty shots and um, intense music. And I'm excited about the Tom York soundtrack. Like, I think it'll probably be great. But um, but I don't know. I don't know how I feel about the running time and I'm not sure how I feel about the idea of there being the, the grieving psychiatrist character who I think probably is a reference to the Udo Kier character in the original, but I, they're giving that a lot of play in the, the new trailers. As I understand, that is actually also Tilda Swinton. That's, that's what I've been, that's what's been rumored. Yeah. I don't so, know if there's um, been an actual um, confirmation of that yet. I'm very curious. Um, and I, st- yeah, like I said, I still need to watch Call Me By Your Name and, and sort of get a handle on what the director's style is. is I, I don't know if Call Me By Your Name will tell you anything about it his style not, compared and to... That's, and that's totally cool, too, though. <laughs> but, I mean, um, I love the movie, but yeah, like, I'm just like, I've when I saw I was like, this guy? Really? This guy? Yeah. And it's funny because uh, David Gordon Green was supposed to do the remake for so long, and now he's doing Halloween, of course. So we're, we're going to have a fun yeah. October. Yeah, I'm excited, and I, you know, I haven't been, I haven't been excited for a horror movie in a while, and that could be bad. That could mean that I'll be very disappointed. But, but I'm reserving. I'm, I'm 
I'm excited to be excited, if that makes sense. It does. Well, thank <laughs> you so much for your time today, Julia. Maybe we'll have you on again, and uh, we'll try to find another horror movie and uh, break it down. And yeah, you can yeah. you can pick one that I I really haven't legitimately seen for once, and we'll we'll, we'll play that out, or maybe yes. vice versa. But yeah, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. So I'll try to get Julia back on here when the uh, the remake of Suspiria comes out. I really think that'd be a fun exercise in kind of revisiting an adaptation and, uh, you know, having a discussion about what makes a, a remake uh, interesting or rewarding. Uh, I think it'd be a good conversation. So I haven't gotten uh, that far with her yet. We're still trying to figure out if I'm actually going to get Suspiria down here in Texarkana, or if I'm going to have to wait to see it in Los Angeles or Shreveport or something along those lines. So I'm reluctant to promise anything on that front. Um, but that's not to say that it's not a project that interests me. Um, in the meantime, I'm nailing down our next guest. It will be another horror movie uh, before the month is out, I'm, I'm hoping. Um, so I'm just trying to find someone who hopefully hasn't seen a very iconic horror movie. Um, a couple folks have approached me and tried to get me to do different Friday the 13th titles. Um, that's fine, but uh, I'm going to try to get something a little more uh, notable. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, at the Cinema Doctor. Uh, please find us on iTunes, subscribe, give us decent you know, ratings if, 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 you, if, we, if you feel like we've earned them, um, and share uh, the, the podcast widely. I'd love to pick up some more listeners. Um, but yeah, we'll see you at the movies.